Welcome to the Storyteller Ethical Storytelling How-To Webinar. My name is Heidi Berkey and I'll be moderating our conversation today. If you're new to ethical storytelling and are wondering exactly what we are, I would encourage you to check out our first webinar, which is Ethical Storytelling 101 and it's available on our website. Thank you for joining us for today's webinar. As we dive in, I have a few disclaimers and requests. First, ethical storytelling is a community of people asking how we tell story in a more dignifying way. Our target audience is storytellers and nonprofit practitioners. We value diverse perspectives and listening, and we acknowledge that we all have blind spots and therefore failures. We don't have all the answers. Second, ethical storytelling as a community is for all practitioners and storytellers working with vulnerable communities. And the ways in which storytelling is needed in each of these spaces will differ dependent on the constituent child protection laws, et cetera. And finally, our target audience for today's webinar is nonprofit storytellers, specifically writers, photographers, and filmmakers. All are welcome, of course. And if you're hoping for more training in other areas, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email at hello at ethicalstorytelling.com. All right, so I'm going to start today's webinar um, with by introducing each of our panelists and who will then share their presentation for approximately 15 to 20 minutes each with the last 15 to 20 minutes being reserved for your questions. So at any point throughout the webinar, please submit your questions to the questions feature, which you'll find on the control panel. Apologies in advance if we're not able to get to all of them. And additionally, please send any topics you'd like to see for future webinars or podcasts. So I'm excited to introduce you to our incredible panelists. Um, each one brings a unique perspective to today's webinar. First, we have Gabriele Casini, a French-Italian documentary photographer and video producer. After receiving a BA in cultural anthropology and a master's degree in international relations, Gabriele started working in the emergency humanitarian sector, where he discovered his proclivity and passion for photography and video production. His time with organizations such as Doctors Without Borders and Save the Children brought him to various contexts around the world, including South Sudan, DRC, and Iraq. He took part in the response to the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa and has been involved in projects assisting people on the move, both in the Mediterranean Sea and on land in Greece. Throughout these experiences, Gabriele felt a growing need to advocate for more ethical and people-centered communications in the development and humanitarian sectors. This led him to start his own consultancy and multimedia production activity. To learn more about his work, visit gcproductions.org. And next we have Adam Schoberg, a filmmaker whose extensive global travel documenting culture, conflict, and human interest stories from dozens of countries around the world has given him an eye for moments of authentic humanity and connection with a visual sensitivity to light, movement, and the unexpected. Adam has directed and produced two feature documentary films, Shake the Dust and I Am Sun Moo. His vision as a documentarian and ability to adapt to the challenging shooting environments from disaster zones to Madison Square Garden have led to collaborations with brands like Starbucks, Belvedere, Warby Parker, The One Campaign, and Whole Foods, among others. 
In 2015, he threw in his lot with Sean Winslow and David Jacobson to form Required Reading, an independent feature film production company. He travels for much of his projects, but these days you'll find him in Los Angeles with his dog Thurston. For more info, visit his website, looseluggage.com. And finally, Constance Dykusen has a master's in public affairs from the LBJ School at the University of Texas. Based in Thailand and Texas, she travels everywhere in between consulting with storytellers and social impact organizations. She is the executive director of JP's Peace, Love and Happiness Foundation, where she manages partnerships and grants. In addition, she is a brand strategy and marketing consultant for organizations like Lyft International and Global Child Advocates that protect trafficked migrant and refugee people. Constance produces content, strategy, and branding to help organizations discover their voice and communicate who they are. Her goal is to see work done with and on behalf of marginalized people be ethical and professional. Acting as both a funder and fundraiser for nonprofits, her work takes her between different worlds. The best part of the job is connecting the two. You can see some of her work on her website, ConstanceDykusen.com. And now I'm going to hand it over to Gabriele. Yes, hello everyone. And uh, well, first of all, thank you Ethical Storytelling for giving uh, me and the other panelists the chance to uh, well present our points of view on uh, what we do for a living and uh, uh, what we strive to achieve in life. But um, well, I'll um, I'll do a pretty short presentation on uh, a few practical tips that I have for. Uh, uh, well, to share a little bit my process when approaching projects, when carrying out pro uh, projects, and when finishing projects in the field. As uh, um, Heidi said, I my background is um, well, it's not strictly communications. I come more from uh, an anthropological, international relations, and then humanitarian background, and from there I shifted onto media and communication. So I would say that my perspective might be a bit different than uh, the one of other uh, communication professionals in this field. But uh, anyway, let's start a little bit with some practical things that I like to keep in mind when, um, yes, when approaching uh, work in the field. Well, first of all, uh, it happens often that I am contacted by clients or that I apply for potential assignments with clients. And the main thing that I do when this happens is try to do extensive research about uh, who the client is, who the NGO is, what their values are, what their communication usually looks like, and what kind of messages they try to put out. Because I believe that uh, it is extremely important to well, it facilitates things a lot to be on the same page when it comes to the fundamental uh, values that I have and that the organization has. Uh, if there are, uh, if I recognize that there are clashes in values or I do not recognize uh, some of the things that I, um, that I believe to be extremely important for me in the work of an organization during this research part, then I tend, I'd, well, to just pass that job on and look for something else that is uh, more 
in line with uh, my values. And I think that's uh, that's extremely important when it comes to making sure that uh, the final product of your work will be on uh, well would be more on the side of what I personally consider to be ethical communication. Then once uh, the client has been uh, researched and uh, found, uh, let's say, in line with what I believe uh, to be a good approach, or at least values in line with mine, I, of course, want to discuss in details uh, the, uh, the project that I am uh, uh, tasked to carry on. So what is the thing that I uh, want, uh, that they want me to document? What is the purpose of the story itself? What is the specific context in which the story uh, is set? And uh, who are the key people that I will be working with once in the field? Again, I really like to dedicate a good amount of time uh, to this so that the best approach to uh, the project itself can be outlined, the key people can be already be identified, and uh, most of the complexities that characterize that specific uh, context or setting can be, uh, well, can be already identified and then uh, kept in mind when but when actually producing the story. And also, I find it really, really important to be very clear with uh, the uh, nonprofit or the client about uh, my specific approach to storytelling and uh, be very clear in defining the expectations that, uh, um, yeah, the expectations about the project. Because, uh, again, we want to be on the same page. We want, uh, the, of course, the client to be happy with the result, and we want also to uh, agree on an appropriate way of carrying out uh, the, well, the storytelling endeavor. So a very important time of this for me is uh, to agree on a time frame that will allow me enough uh, time to connect with the subjects that I will have, uh, that I will have in my story. So uh, I know that most of the times NGOs are on a tight budget, and that's totally fine because I've been working for NGOs as an employee in advocacy and communication for quite a few years, and I fully understand what the setting and the constraints of the work are. But uh, and that's why I try. Okay, maybe charge a bit lower price uh, for the individual day, but try to have a bit more time in the field to allow me to actually link, first of all, with the teams uh, on the ground to be part of uh, the work and then to get to know uh, and interact uh, with uh, the people that they assist and that will be part of the story. And this uh, leads me to the production part. So once we agreed all this, it's time to go to leave for the field. And uh, the first thing that I try to do on the ground is try to, as I was mentioning before, really spend time with the teams that I'll be working with because they are my uh, gateway to, uh, to the people that ultimately will be featured in the story. And they often are also part of the story. They hold a lot of information about the context, they know uh, the people that they are working with. So I try to, in, this, in the short amount of time that I have, I try to become a part of their team. I try to take, uh, uh, well, 
get to take part to their activities, try to, well, get to know them just to gain their trust and have more access, but also more honest communication between me and the teams and vice versa. And uh, this also allows me to integrate them into the creative process of writing, photographing or filming a story. Because I guess that in my experience, at least the best results and the ones that also tend to reflect a more ethical approach tend to uh, come from uh, collaborations with the subjects involved. And the same goes uh, for the main characters of the story, whether they are patients of a medical NGO or uh, whether they are beneficiaries of um, a child rights NGO or something like that. It's extremely important to uh, get to know the main characters that will uh, take part to your story, speak to them, uh, make sure that they fully understand what they are signing up for. So explaining my role, the purpose of the story itself and how the story is going to be told, what the audience will be. So all the thing, all the steps that are necessary, first of all, to obtain proper informed consent, but also making sure that they fully understand each step and component of this because uh, at the end of the day they are the population that uh, first of all is in a vulnerable position there and also they might feel a certain obligation to give something to the organization that is uh, assisting them and the purpose of these chats is to diffuse a little bit of this power dynamic or this sense of obligation that people might have to make them understand that they're taking part to this story is not um, impacting their ability to get assistance or is not impacting the way that the organization itself would provide them with services or will uh, relate to them in general. But of course, it's also important to make them understand that they will have public exposure by taking part to this and that this might also have an impact on their private lives. So yeah, getting to know them, getting to know the story, familiarize with them and explain to them the purpose in a really extensive way. And usually for the first day or two days, I try not to, uh, well, not to take photos or film uh, unless it's strictly necessary for things that will not happen in the next days or there is something exceptional going on. But because I want to, uh, well, I want to really uh, make my presence, uh, well, as seamless as possible within the organization that I'm uh, working with. And uh, once then uh, this first uh, getting to know each other period uh, is finished, or at least uh, we know each other to a good degree, uh, and I start actually filming, writing, or photographing, then I will try to be very careful in respecting the boundaries, privacy, and dignity of people because uh, we should not forget that most of the times they are uh, in situations that might put them in a vulnerable position when it comes also to their mental health. They might have been through traumatizing experiences and uh, telling stories always carries an emotional, um, an emotional component to it on the side of the person who is telling it because they might relieve trauma, they might uh, re-experience things that they are trying to, uh, well, to process and uh, so I try to be very receptive to um, 
uh, well, to, to the feelings of the other person, to their behavior, to their body language, and understanding whether or not in that specific instance is the case to continue the interview, to take a break, or uh, to uh, remind them that they are not forced in any way to do that, and they can stop in whenever they want, whenever they feel uncomfortable, they can say, no, I don't want to speak about this, and all these kind of things. So maintaining a dialogue with them. I well, I was lucky enough to work with a number of medical organizations and they provided me with psychosocial first aid trainings. And I think that this is extremely important when dealing with subjects that uh, might have some mental health vulnerabilities in general. So yeah, this is the approach that I uh, have while I'm uh, shooting or writing or photographing. And uh, well, once that part is done, I, I make sure that the people that are featured in the story review the photos, the footage, or the lines that I've been writing about them and the context in which these are embedded and uh, see if they feel fairly represented, if they are happy with, uh, with the way that I have portrayed them and with the way that the world will perceive them and their communities and the setting in which they are. Because again, I want to avoid objectification and commodification of the people that uh, we are uh, that, that we are assisting and that we are trying to uh, well to give a platform to. So I think that an important step of that is to write accurate and extensive captions, not to omit details, but to make sure that the audience then will understand that these people these people are not tokens; they are not representative of a whole community or uh, uh, they are not stereotypes of uh, uh, specific groups of people, but they are individuals with their own names and their own stories, which are extremely, uh, which is important to give depth to what we are saying to avoid objectification, commodification, and exploitation of the situation. And I also try to select images that do not sensationalize things so they keep the dignity of people intact because at the end of the day they are the ones that will have to live with the long-term consequences of their image being promoted in a specific way so anything that is uh, perceived as undignified i try as much as i can to avoid and uh, to do so i look at my story and ask myself would i or my community be okay with being represented this way would this be okay in the western world do we see things like this in the western world with western subjects uh, or uh, what is the prevalent feeling that I get from the story? Is it pity? pity? Is it empathy? Is it uh, inspiration? So I, I try to steer away from those feelings that tend to uh, be on the pity spectrum because, again, I think that that deprives people of their own agency, deprives people from dignity and, and portrays people more as uh, helpless victims of circumstances more than active individuals that are trying as much as anybody would to improve their situations and be part of their own change. So yeah, I, I'm asking myself if I'm oversimplifying or flattening the situation uh, and uh, if I'm fostering stereotypes or damaging tropes. And also I try to keep a long-term relationship with people while I'm writing the story or post-producing the story. So I try to go back to my subjects as much as I can if I have doubts, if I am not sure on uh, how they would feel about specific things. I just, 
yeah, I, I go back to them. I ask them clarifications. I make sure that things are not too lost in translation because that is often an issue. And uh, I also try to share uh, photos and audiovisual material with them because often they do not have much, at least with the populations that I've been working with in remote areas of uh, the world, they have very little access to, for example, printed photos or photography in general. So I try to bring with me some photographic paper and print them some of the photos that they like the best so they can carry them uh, along as memories or uh, keep, as keepsakes or specific experiences. And uh, I try to keep them being available to their questions and answer whatever they feel like they need to ask me. So generally, very quickly, this is the approach that I try to have in the field from uh, uh, pre-production to post-production. And uh, now I would like to share also just a very few visual examples of uh, contexts that have been particularly challenging when it comes to these, uh, uh, well, to ethical storytelling in general. The first one is uh, search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I have spent a total of nine months on the rescue boats in the Mediterranean, and uh, I can say that is one of the most challenging contexts when it comes to uh, ethical storytelling. First of all, because uh, you spend very little time with the people that uh, you're assisting, and you're meeting them at some of the most difficult moments in their lives where they just escaped sometimes months or years of torture, they uh, they have been seasick, so they might have body fluids all over them. So it can be a very undignified uh, way or situation to uh, be portrayed in. So what I try to do, first of all, is uh, selecting images that portray them in action. So them uh, helping uh, each other and themselves being part of the rescue and uh, yeah just displaying them as uh, active components of the rescue operation and then after that is done i try to yeah talk to them and spend all the time that i can showing the different photos that i took asking them if they're okay with how they are being represented and uh, asking them as many details as i can about their experiences so that they can actually create a context to the photos and at the same time i also try to show lighter moments like this one that you are seeing now where you see some people that have just been rescued just maybe a couple of hours before the photo was taken and uh, now they're just playing with water because it was unbelievably hot and they take out this playful side because of the relief and because of their innate resilience that as human beings we have and uh, try to take also portraits that might, um, let's say, look uh, a bit off place in, uh, uh, out of place in such a situation where people are between life and death, but show that they, there is still the ability to smile in the face of adversity, to go back to this, uh, yeah, again, resilience and, uh, well, let's say humorous sometimes spirit that as human beings we have in extremely difficult situations, like this portrait of a man that clearly by the signs of on his forehead had been tortured in Libya, beaten up, and uh, now had just been rescued from a leaky sinking boat and uh, he's smiling with a glow in his eyes. So I think that's a powerful image. It gives really a connection to human spirit, but also, uh, in these situations like you'll see in uh, these next photos, because the next couple of photos I want to show problematic cases. Here, 
uh, in a situation like that, people feel extremely grateful to you because you were part of saving them from death, basically, at sea. So they will feel like they owe you something, that they will do anything you ask them to do, and uh, that is not a right. We need to be clear with the fact that they do not owe us things. We are doing our job, of course, because we want to assist other people. But the fact that we are doing that doesn't mean that they are in debt with us. So explaining to them that images uh, uh, that they do not feel comfortable with or stories that they do not feel comfortable with will not be used. And they have total freedom to say yes or no to things. So again, informed consent and making sure that they are empowered as individuals. And this image that you're seeing in particular, also I find it problematic because it can fall within the trope of the white savior, uh, uh, the white savior complex that uh, many organizations unfortunately tend to have, which is showing a white doctor in a power position or uh, in, a, um, yeah, yeah, in, in a very helpful situation towards a person in a vulnerable position. And I, I think, how do we use this kind of images in a more ethical way if we really want to use that specific image? My answer is the one as before, using as much context as uh, as much context as you can. So providing the details about the name and the story of the specific people involved, uh, telling uh, the audience how they ended up being there and um, yeah, what their individual experience is in that specific instance. So another problematic image I think could be uh, this one that I recently taken on assignment in Ethiopia and is showing an extremely severely acutely malnourished uh, child. And uh, usually images of malnourished children are the typical uh, poverty, porn or pity industry. Uh, well, they are the main staple of this kind of tendencies. But at the same time, sometimes it's important to show uh, a specific situation and uh, try to give an understanding of uh, the gravity or the severity of a, uh, of a dynamic or of an emergency. And for me, doing that in an ethical way, again, it can be tricky. This image also had a little, a few doubts about, but I chose to portray here the child together with his grandmother. So I deliberately chose to avoid depicting any expatriate doctor or uh, uh, NGO uh, personnel with these people, but showing actually a family member taking care of another family member in a way that any grandmother or person that has uh, children related to them can uh, can understand and can relate to. So in a way that we can more uh, identify ourselves with and empathize more uh, with than uh, a child with a swollen belly, them all over uh, their body and uh, flies in their eyes. So, and again, providing context and names and uh, information about the people that are being portrayed and uh, yeah, just showing them as human beings, individual human beings that are part of a difficult situations but are not helpless victims. They are resilient, they have a strong community sense and uh, they spend a lot of time and energy trying to improve their own situation. And us as uh, members of the NGO community are there to assist them but not to save them. So yeah, I hope that I was within my 15 to 20 minutes. That was a very quick overview on how I like to work. And I'm looking forward to your questions after the other two panelists uh, will finish the presentations. Thank you. And now I will actually share, uh, well,
pass the ball to Adam. There you go, Adam. Thank you so much. One moment. Well, hello, everybody. I'm glad and honored that I could be a part of this today. Um, thank you so much, Gabriele. That was uh, really good. And I'm going to sort of build off of that uh, beginning discussion. Um, as you heard in the introduction, I um, come more from a production background, but I started as a photographer a while ago. And this idea of ethical storytelling has been a passion of mine for uh, the better part of my adult years. Um, but that being said, it's it's a learning process. and you know, I think when you first get into um, telling stories on behalf of nonprofits or on, the, on behalf of causes, it can be easy to think, oh, well, I'm doing a good thing. Um, I'm helping this nonprofit. I'm hopefully bringing awareness. Um, but the reality is it, it takes constant vigilance, vigilance and intentionality. And as you can see, a lot of what Gabriele was sharing is that um, part of ethical storytelling happens after the fact. There's you know, certainly images that you're going to take or, or shots that you're going to shoot where um, after the fact you really realize it's not the most dignifying or the most helpful way of portraying the situation. Um, so I'm, I'm going to um, go through, as kind of as Gabrielle did, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the various steps of production. And um, much of this is in a particular context that uh, I'm going to be talking about the relationship between nonprofit partners and um, and myself, and also um, just thinking about um, how that is going to apply both in the field and out of the field. Um, so first of all, um, you know, we're all here because we care about ethical storytelling. So I think uh, I'm going to assume a certain base level of understanding. And I, and I know also I just want to add that there might be a few nonprofits that are that are listening in on this, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And some of this you might say, well, no, Dodd, if that's the case, um, that's good, because I think that this conversation has really gone a long ways. And um, But I will say that I became aware of the need to communicate um, a set of standards for ethical storytelling, largely from working with nonprofits that didn't seem to, even though they were very familiar with their own work, um, they knew it backwards and forwards and were doing very good work, often didn't really understand or know um, exactly how um, the media that they create can um, do damage to the communities that they're working with. So, you know, for, for me, the first thing um, I, you know, highlight to anyone who's getting into this work is that there should be um, no surprises when, once you're in the field about what is right and what is wrong um, for yourself. So before you're even communicating your own standards to um, nonprofit partners, knowing for yourself what, what you believe is right um, when it comes to documenting uh, these issues or documenting a cause. Um, so, if you, you know, it is your job to know your own standards and point of view and make them clear to yourself. And for me, I even say, you know, I think writing them out for yourself and, and having an ongoing document of a, a sort of a, uh, a set of rules for yourself of what um, you believe is right. So that one, because once you're in the field, it can be chaotic. And, um, and oftentimes the nonprofit partner you know, they're under, you know, an enormous amount of scrutiny and stress to, to get, you know, under a limited budget, get the media that they need to be able to tell their own story. And um, so having a very clear perspective yourself is really important. 
I also talk a lot and Gabrielle touched on this, but of, of just doing your own homework. Um, some of the best, non, or you know, some of the, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say best, but most well-funded or well-staffed nonprofit organizations have the ability to either do advance trips to prepare for a you know a media gathering or a trip or or even have a I've even had an organization this is very rare but I've even had an organization send me an entire binder um, with data about um, the cause that they're a part of um, but it's still your responsibility to understand that cause to understand the organization um, as Gabriele pointed out partly a part of that is to know that you are in lockstep with what this organization is doing and that you agree with what they're doing that you're willing to put um, your work and your images out there on behalf of them but also it's just um, once you're in the field knowing uh, you know if whether it's if it's malaria you know understanding the basics of malaria is going to help you be a better um, a better photographer a better filmmaker in the field um, and then, of course, communicating those standards uh, that we talked about at the beginning to the nonprofit in advance. This is we're still talking pre-production here. So this is when you have those phone calls or those meetings, letting them know, maybe even showing them your um, your written document about what your standards are for ethical storytelling and helping them understand that so that you can problem solve in advance. Because sometimes that, you know, they might have expectations that uh, from, from their from their schedule that need to be re reworked based on your standards. And that's way easier to do in advance when they have time to do that um, than on the spot. Um, and I think, you know, I, I have here emphasized the need for support in the field. So helping the, uh, the partner, the, the organization that you're working with, or the person from the organization that you're working with, helping them understand that you can't go in there alone. You need their, it's a team. And a lot of times these organizations have relationships that you don't already have. Uh, and they of course have a knowledge base that you don't have even if you've done your homework. Um, so really just emphasizing that partnership and help them understand that you need them um, to be able to do this right, to be able to do justice by um, the people that you're gonna be documenting. Um, and then have your paperwork in order. Um, this is pretty straightforward, but um, you know, releases, um, are important and also just um, knowing what the standards are in the local community that you're going to be shooting in um, to make sure that you have informed consent. Um, and then, uh, you know, doing your homework and understanding the issue is important, but also um, helping the nonprofit know what their homework can be because sometimes um, that can be a challenge to know how they should be preparing and who they can be talking to in the field, their counterparts, their local counterparts. Um, how they can be communicating um, not only the uh, logistical needs, but also um, really helping the, the local counterparts in the community understand what the needs are in order to be able to tell stories with dignity. Um, and then this is an obvious one, but um, you know, I just wrote, tell stories, don't just collect images. You know, the most, uh, it may be obvious, but the most dignifying way to share a nonprofit's work is through individual stories told by getting to know the people on the ground who are benefiting the most from the work. And, um, and seeing people as well-rounded, <laughs> full human individuals. Um, and this could be said at any point in this presentation, but I, I want to point out something that Gabriele said, which is the idea of pity versus empathy. Um, you know, what, what would you want or care about or be annoyed by if somebody came into your home or your community and began photographing or filming you, whether you had permission, you gave them permission or not? Um, so I think reversing the role and trying to understand that, you know, you may see these, 
you know people as people that are in need of your help but they're also just humans with uh, regular lives who um, have you know they don't want to be portrayed in ways that are embarrassing they don't want to um, have photos taken of them that they didn't know were taken and that are being used you know against their consent and you know, I think that even going into someone's home, you know, again, oftentimes in these situations, they may feel um, that they owe you something because, you know, they might be benefiting from the work of the organization that you're there with. But, um, you know, they don't they don't owe you their, you know, their their photo or um, their their story. They're offering it to you um, and you just need to treat that with dignity. So in the production process. So one of the things, and this is a photo here in the field um, with a, a really wonderful friend of mine named Louisa, who I've worked with on a lot of projects. And again, this is within the context. A lot of times nowadays I work with a larger crew, but um, this is within the context of sort of a one man run and gun show shooter where I'm the only guy with the camera. And it's literally me and a, and a counterpart from the nonprofit um, doing all of the work of pre-production, production, and post-production together. And Louisa and I have worked on a lot of projects together and have spent a bunch of time in, in uh, East and West Africa. Um, so she's a, she works for Project Red, which is part of the One campaign. So she's a great example of what I'm about to talk about, which is um, just creating that partnership in the field um, where you are, you know, if you're the photographer or the filmmaker, and they are essentially, they kind of become your producer. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that, that, <clears throat> you know, is a, can, there can be a little bit for someone who's maybe a founder of a nonprofit or just a communications director at a nonprofit. Um, this sometimes is a new role to fill this idea of being a producer in the field. Um, but like any normal shoot, um, the counterpart you're traveling with should be acting as your producer in many regards. You can't do it all or be conscious of every little thing that is happening while you're shooting. Um, they should be educated to help facilitate the relationship and the logistics and ensure that release forms are signed and that real consent is given. Um, and, and this obviously is the case with in pre-production as well. There, you know, Louisa is really good about going in and, and finding people that are really willing and excited to tell their story um, so by the time I arrive, oftentimes we don't have the luxury of a lot of time for me to get to know the subject matter. Now, I'm someone who likes, depending on the situation, I want oftentimes days or weeks to get to know the subject matter if it's a longer project. But there's certainly situations where, where I'm meeting the person for the first time that day. Um, but at least I know going in that they have an established relationship with, in this example, Louisa. Um, and even then, I still go in and I don't have my camera out. I sit down with her, I introduce myself, they have an understanding of who I am, they have a context for me because Louisa has either physically spoken to them in person or has spoken to them in advance. And that's an incredibly powerful role to have um, because when you have limited budget, limited time, limited resources, to be able to, uh, and, and and can't do necessarily all of the work that you wanna do to be able to really get to know this person, um, that's crucial. Um, so I, I wrote Immerse Yourself. Um, for me, this is exists well outside of the actual filming or photographing or um, the paid work that I'm doing. This is whenever I'm in a place and it doesn't stop when I turn off my camera or when I go back to my hotel at night. It's uh, for me, it's really important when I'm in a, a place to really know the culture, 
um, to meet other people, to go around, walk around the market, walk around on the streets, go out to restaurants. It can be really tempting when you're, especially if you're on the other side of the globe, um, you know, when you're traveling from the United States is, and you're going to Africa, there's an enormous amount of jet lag. There might be culture shock. There might be exhaustion. Um, but just not to be too tempted to pull up in the air conditioned hotel room, but, um, it's, I've had some of my most rewarding experiences by going out, um, when I wasn't filming and really getting to know the place and falling in love with the place, because that's going to impact the way that you put these stories together. This seems like an obvious one, but I would say that this is one of the biggest lessons I've learned in general in production is that being a decent human to work with, having a good work ethic, having a good attitude, being adaptable and flexible is invaluable and inevitably um, impacts the way that the stories come out. Um, I'm not going to stick around too long on this one, but it, it's a huge one. It's just, just the idea of uh, having a good attitude or even if, if something happens in the field that you're not okay with, even if it is an ethical issue, dealing with it in a way that is mature and not condescending um, and doesn't compromise the relationship the nonprofit partner might have with the local community. Um, and then this is another one is including, and this is something that I've been able to do increasingly over the years is um, include um, locals in my actual production process. So I've been able to more and more, especially as in some of these more remote places, they have access to technology and information that they didn't have 10 years ago when I started doing this. I've been able to include people in the production process, um, whether that's holding a camera or being a translator or running sound or even hiring them to go shoot B-roll or, or other um, components. Post-production. Um, <clears throat> this, this is a time, um, Gabriele pointed this out, where you can, you could easily walk away and say, okay, well, I had, you know, I treated them with dignity while I was with them, but um, it, it happens that it, it, it's the post-production is just as important of a time to remember your ethical storytelling standards and, and remembering um, that your job doesn't stop when you leave the country. Um, this seems obvious, but and, and this just goes back to fostering that relationship and obviously hopefully getting hired again when you're working with a nonprofit. But um, just be an adult, meet your deadlines. Nonprofits are often understaffed and overworked. Um, be the sane one, stick to your discussed production deadlines. They will appreciate it and want to work with you again, and it's just the right thing to do. Um, that doesn't mean that I haven't probably on, on almost every project had times where either I or the nonprofit, you know, ran behind for whatever reason on, you know, especially when you're, when you're editing a film, um, this can happen. But again, um, they, a lot of nonprofits are underfunded and overworked and um, being easy to work with just seems obvious, but it uh, goes really, a really long way. And yeah, the, as I said before, the ethical decision-making does not stop when you leave the country. And I also wrote, include locals in your post-production process when possible. Um, this is where I've often relied on local communities to help me with translation or with um, verifying facts or finding the name of someone um, that I didn't get. Um, I just think it's in another element of dignifying a local community is, is making it a, a group effort, the telling of these stories. Um, Know your professional boundaries, have a really clear set contract ahead of time of what your schedule is going to be, what your rates are, um, what overages are. Um, this is 
there could be an entire talk just on professional stuff here when you're talking about a relationship with a nonprofit, but I won't, so I won't go too much into that, but um, that is, is crucial as well, just because it'll save you headaches later when there is, if there is some confusion over, you know, well, you know, how long a, a cut going back and forth on a particular cut or project or uh, photos is, is going. And then this is huge. Um, not every nonprofit is going to have the same highest standard for a final result as maybe they should. And this is, goes beyond just the specifics of how to tell someone's story in a dignified way, but also just dignifying yourself by no matter what the nonprofit standard is saying, I want to make this the best I can possibly be. I want to be proud of this um, because that goes back to not only yourself, but it's also that caring about and loving the final product of what you're making is dignifying um, for the people that you're documenting. Um, and I've had situations, I've had times in my career where, you know, I, it, it was a frustrating shoot. I didn't get everything I wanted. Um, it was exhausting. I was sick. It was hot. Um, there's always going to be things that can inhibit, can inhibit the final result from being as best as it can possibly be. But um, I think it's really key to um, be passionate about the story besides, not just because you're getting paid to go do it, but because um, these issues and causes are important and these people's stories are important and they deserve your best work. Um, so this is just a few kind of case studies. This is uh, going back to what I said about immersing myself. I've made a lot of friends along the way just by um, hanging out. This is in West Africa um, and by exploring. And some of my favorite photos and things that I've taken have been when I wasn't on the clock per se, but was just um, traveling around and being curious. <clears throat> um, going back to being a joy to work with or, or trying to uh, be additive, not just because of the uh, talent that you bring, but also um, because hopefully you are um, just having a good attitude and remaining flexible in, the, in situations that are not uh, always easy where you have challenges coming up all the time. And this is a uh, Sun Moo. I made a documentary about him, but he and I spent, this is kind of the extreme example of being able to spend time with your subject off camera. I, I'm not able to show his face um, in the documentary that I made about him, but I was able to spend weeks, if not months, cumulatively getting to know him and his family and really knowing him. <clears throat> um, and then this, this is just an example of Oscar, who I've known for almost 10 years now. And uh, when I first was filming in, in East Africa, he would ask if he could assist me and uh, he would hold the microphone or hold or help record sound. And then eventually he started taking stills and then eventually he got a micro loan. And now he's someone that when I can't um, do a job, I refer him and he has an entire body of work that's internationally known. Um, and that's just from initially from holding a microphone in interviews 10 years ago when he was just a kid. <clears throat> Um, so I'll, I think I've used up at least all, at least 15 minutes. Um, so I'll wrap it up there. But thanks everyone, and um, looking forward to answering any questions. Now I'm going to pass the microphone on. Constance. Thanks, Adam. Um, it's been so inspirational to hear y'all go, um, your presentations. Um, so I wanted to start off today with a 
um, with a part of my philosophy of telling stories are really more just an idea that I like to keep in mind when I seek to tell the story of an individual and organization. I'm a writer producer, so um, my patron saint of writing and storytelling, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, said in her TED talk, um, so that is how to create a single story, show people as one thing, as only one thing over and over again, and that is what they become. It is impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power. There was a word, an Igbo word, that I think about whenever I think about the power structures of the world, and it is Nikali. It is a noun that loosely translates to be greater than another. Like our economic and political worlds, stories too are defined by the principle of Nikali. How are they told? Who tells them? When they're told? How many stories are really told and are really dependent on power? Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. Um, so she was talking specifically about the single story of Africa and how she didn't fit into that narrative when she came to the US. I think about this quote and about that TED talk, um, particularly when I go to places that aren't familiar to my community. Um, what stories am I telling and what power am I using to do so? What stories have been told before and do those stories need to be gently corrected? Um, how might people I'm interviewing want their stories to be told? Um, so my story philosophy is really to tell as accurate, informed, and qualified a story as possible. By accurate, I mean representative of an individual and truthful. Um, informed, I mean kind of backing it up with research and supporting data and a wider historical and cultural perspective. Um, and really seeking out news sources beyond just what the client or the story subject has told me, because sometimes you can't take that for granted. Um, by qualified, I mean that just because I'm telling um, a story of perhaps a past trauma, a story about a person and maybe their disease, um, they're being trafficked, they're being a refugee, that isn't who they have always been or who they will always be. Um, conversely, just because somebody is doing really well now as a result of a program or another input doesn't mean that their lives or success are solved. People are allowed to fail, people are allowed to make mistakes. Um, a story is simply a snapshot. And I think that social impact marketing specifically um, should really try to reflect that this is a person and not strictly just a spokesperson for your cause or your organization. Um, so I didn't really used to do anything to prepare for the field. Heidi asked me to talk about this and I had to go back and think. Um, when I was kind of a, a writer, a producer, and a human light stand, um, as my photographer friend would call me, um, I would just kind of land with two feet on the ground and start talking to people and getting all of my org information directly from the organization and the people I interviewed. Um, and I don't do that anymore. I found um, that it's just not the best way to do it. So um, I know that it feels like a luxury because as a young contractor or an employee, you don't want to interrogate your superiors. Um, but I really think it saves a lot of frustration um, and to ask questions um, both for yourself and for the organization kind of what um, Adam referred to earlier. It really shows how prepared they are to have you come to the field. It shows how your stories might be used or misused in the future in their comms. Um, and as I have moved on from kind of being an interviewer and a writer to more of a producer of brands and organizations, I've learned that ethical storytelling really does start with ethical brands. Um, I now wish that I had asked for these, field, these things before going to the field with every client. Um, so I, I wish that just to be really specific, some of um, I'd love to see a measure of their in, an evaluation of their impact and make sure that their data is consistent and accurate. Um, do they have solid and transparent financials that they're willing to show both to you and to their donor base? Is this something that um, they're willing to, um, to share with you? So 
for vision, mission, and values, some organizations uh, I found sometimes don't even have them. So making sure that first that they have them and also that they align with your values is really important. Um, for media guidelines, um, these are usually just kind of suggestions for how an organization safeguards their clients. And you want to make sure that you adhere to their security policy. Um, organizations that deal specifically with children should have a child protection policy, and you should know what those are before interviewing a child, when, you know, wanting to make sure if you have uh, need to have a guardian or social worker present. Um, and one thing that I've really enjoyed doing a lot more recently is training staff on why ethical storytelling is important and why they are a big part of it. Um, and if this is something that maybe they haven't done in the past, um, if ask an organization if they would be willing to have you do it. I think that brings so much um, to the stories that you're trying to tell and it, it lives on beyond you and any future stories that they try to communicate. Um, also just kind of being really certain that you know what language, words, and tone are best with the client. Um, I specifically try to try to stay away from um, words like rescue and save when I'm when I'm writing copy or doing things because I've just found those to be kind of overused and to really kind of as um, as Adam was saying too, like to just to take away agency from people. And so I try to to focus on on what words could be a little bit better and a little bit more um, specific. Um, and I also, one of the things that is surprised, has been surprising to me is I ask, who are your clients that I can interview? And sometimes people can't answer that question. They don't know the names of their clients. They don't know the people that are benefiting from their services. And so if I had asked those questions, I probably wouldn't have worked with those organizations. If they didn't know the people that they were um, working with, um, I probably had no business being here. Um, so, but again, I learned this for um, working for organizations more long-term. These were things that I kind of had to learn the hard way. Um, and I think once you have satisfactory answers or your organization is working towards those things, um, then it's time to go to the field. Um, being in the field is really my favorite thing. I think it's probably what we all um, get the most excited about. Um, I don't know how you all shoot or capture stories, but every time I'm in the field, it's very happy chaos. Um, as you're being dragged to go and meet somebody's goats or you stop to see somebody um, in their home, you get pulled into the lives of others, and if you're like me, um, I start to kind of architect the story. Um, but I have to remind myself that the most important thing, I think, is just to be present and to listen. It's really tough um, assisting or doing lighting or trying to capture the shot or work with a photographer, but really just trying to hone in on what that person is telling you. Um, I think it's the most important thing. Um, and in my experience, everything comes from the interview. Everything stems from listening, just sitting down with people where they are, um, and in this way, too, your images um, are informed by the subject. Um, I think drinking the tea, taking time to meet each family member, all of this leads to a better relationship, a better interview, and a more informed and accurate story. Um, and so when I'm in the field, I am very much capturing shots in my head like this um, and directing the photographer, the videographer, thinking of tags as long as I go. Um, I don't know if anybody else does this, but this is what I'm doing. Um, and usually I, I interview first and then I let the photographer or videographer know that one kid maybe like soccer and should be shot with their team. Or perhaps um, I, when I first met this couple and I heard their story, I knew that we were going to turn this into a love story because they just had a beautiful um, story of how they met each other. And so this is just how, how I wanted to present it from the very beginning. Um, and so just a couple of things to remember, I think, when you're in the field is um, don't start an interview without first explaining specifically who you are, what you do, and where the images or story will end up. And as a result of that, getting explicit written consent. And if it's a minor, making sure that you have their parent or guardian to sign off. This is just 
number one, I don't really, I don't get started without doing this because I really want people to understand who I am, why I'm there. Um, it's pretty peculiar, I think, to just have somebody come and sit in your living room and start asking questions. Um, so I like to be really specific with them. Um, I also think it helps tremendously to foster a great relationship and an understanding with your interpreter. Um, you want to make sure if it's a male interviewing a female or a female interviewing a male, you want to know where your lines are, what culture things to be aware of, and you just want to have a great relationship with them. Um, I also really recommend recording your conversations. I think it helps you to be present in the moment and it helps you to go back and notice things um, maybe that you didn't the first time. One thing I've, I've realized as an interviewer is I think when I first got out into the field, I think I pushed a little too hard or I think I had to discover like the core of somebody's soul. And so um, I really try not to push too much. Um, I, I said like, um, you're not Christian Amanpour interviewing the president. Um, I think there's a power dynamic to be aware of. Um, you do have the power to compel people maybe to tell you anything, especially when they might need or want you um, your help for something. But you have to know when not to use it, when not to push. Um, and maybe when somebody is hiding something and it's for them to keep and not for you. Um, also, I found in interviews that there's a lot of inconvenient truths. Sometimes I've asked people, you know, tell me, how has this water system affected you? And they have flat out said, no, or not at all, or I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> um, and so you just kind of have to report that on to the client and move on. Um, but you'll definitely come across people that may disagree um, with the story you're trying to tell. And that's got to be a part of it. Um, so um, after I've returned from the field and kind of the high of all of that is over, there are a few steps I try to make myself go through to make sure I'm producing ethical content. Um, I apply these steps to my copy, my tags, if I'm writing a story or doing a video script. Um, you could probably do most of these things before going into the field after, um, actually, but I tend to do them after. Um, just really seeking to know what is my main story. How do you group individuals together or tell one story to produce something that is truthful and beautiful and that compels people to connect? Um, I would also say fact check, check your damn stats. Um, stats are so important. Um, make, you've got to make sure that the client is correct and that their statistics are actually accurate. Sometimes you can't take for granted that um, what they're saying is, um, is true. Um, and kind of as part of that, just doing a lot of research, going to look at news articles, learning about the region, seeing what's been written about it before, or what stories have been told about it before. Um, also just quoting your sources, um, or at least passing those on to client to make sure that you back up where your work that they're aware of the numbers that you're using and why. Um, I also think, I mean, it's it's so important to just not blame someone's culture, ideas, or religion for a problem. Um, I think a lot of times I see this where I live um, in Thailand, people assume things about why the sex trade occurs, um, or you know, they have ideas of why a certain culture is a certain way that it is. And I think it's just kind of too easy and too sloppy to draw um, causation or correlation from things like that, that we really, um, Sometimes, you know, nobody knows, but even more specifically, we as storytellers um, don't know. Um, I also think it's really important to not be afraid to challenge a client. Um, I think I've heard, you know, I've heard clients say, we are the first people to ever bring water to this village, or we are the first white people that they've seen. Um, and sometimes that's just not true. Um, I try to let the stories reflect what is and what not, um, not what the client necessarily thinks that they should be. And I think that's okay. I think donors know that things aren't perfect and I think that stories just need to reflect um, you know, the work on the ground. I think there's kind of a trap of pretending that the organization is the, the first person to try to solve this problem or you've got to get this kind of urgency out of it. And I think it's okay and that you can still tell beautiful stories without that. Um, and just also um, matching 
tech, matching text to photos. Like I work closely with photographers or videographers to make sure that Sarah is actually Sarah um, and to make sure that we're talking about the right people. It sounds, it sounds silly, but sometimes it happens. Um, and then uh, making sure that you aren't revealing anything that would endanger anyone. Um, trafficking survivors and survivors of violence um, especially need their identities protected. Um, I, I mean, also I have this down because this has actually happened. Um, don't check in on Instagram at their house or don't let people know when you're in the field, especially if you're talking about somebody who's vulnerable. Um, you know, people don't need to know where they live. People should not know um, where your story subjects live. Um, and this has been said, but just not relying on categorizations or stereotypes. Um, you can, I think it's tempting to rely on tropes or categorizations, especially as writers, because um, they're easy um, and you expect people to kind of identify them, but you can rely on old stories um, in old ways that were perhaps based on a lie or just perhaps, um, I think it's just more exciting to try to tell it in a fresh way. Um, uh, another thing would be um, avoid telling everything for the sake of convincing people that there's a need. Sometimes, you know, somebody's HIV status or disease or um, lifestyle or family, um, sometimes it's just dragging out people's pain to make your story better or to make your story more convincing um, that there's a need. But um, sometimes I just think that it's better to keep back some of what some of what you know sometimes. And, um, and you do that through um, through editing. I reread and I make sure that I didn't write anything about anyone. It's so funny. Everybody said you wouldn't write anything you wouldn't say about yourself, but I use my mother. I don't know if I'm just kinder to my mother, but I don't write anything about anybody um, that I wouldn't write about my own mother that I wouldn't want shared. Um, it keeps me honest and it keeps me from hyperbole. Um, I listen back to the tape and I sit with the story for a while and I make sure that, um, that I feel good about everything. And if I don't, um, I kind of do a last minute check, just making sure. And if, if I don't feel good about it, I really, I try to err on this side of not sharing. Um, because you know you you really you're there to protect people's stories and you've sat in their homes and you've met their families and if you've done those things you really want to guard and protect um, what they've told you and, and so I wanted to um, kind of just end with a little bit of an aha moment that I've had as a storyteller um, I would send stories off to clients and often many of them were never never used or they were used um, in ways that I didn't agree with and so um, I had all of these beautiful stories but um, that I thought were beautiful and ethical, but um, if they weren't being used, why was I doing this? Or um, was it useful or even worth my time? Um, and also from a practical perspective, long form writing and storytelling is kind of out the door. Um, it's increasingly difficult to get in front of an audience and I needed to personally change up um, my approach to storytelling and think about how I was gonna influence storytelling. Um, so I had an aha moment uh, that I needed um, to spend more time with each organization and help inform policy and shape culture. Um, so I'm not just consulting on individual stories anymore, but consulting on an organization about how to tell the story of their whole brand. Um, so now I build brands. Um, I can more strategically build and execute a strategy for how organizations will approach storytelling. Um, building a brand or um, helping organizations tell their story um, allows me to go back and do all those things, make sure organizations have media guidelines, have um, ethical policy, child protection policy, uh, make sure that I can train their staff. Um, and I can think um, about how not just a single story will impact donors, but how an organization has the ability to shape its culture and that of its context. Um, so that has just been a really great part of storytelling for me, just kind of a place to influence the the wider spectrum of storytelling and to affect how organizations tell stories um, not just now but but always um, 
And a long-term approach obviously isn't possible for, for everybody, um, but creating an ethical story in a vacuum um, of an ethical organization was not really what I set out to do. Um, I, I really think that pushing for ethical stories and holding organizations accountable, even by asking simple questions, if you are a contractor by like, you know, can I just see your budget or what's your child protection policy really goes a long way in making sure that ethical stories are being told. Um, and so I thanks very much. Um, I'm very excited to continue this conversation and hear some of your questions. Thank you to all of our presenters. Um, we have about a little under 10 minutes for Q&A, so I'm going to just start and get through as many as we can. The first one is for Gabriele. Um, question is, how do you handle written versus verbal consent? Do you always recommend getting written consent if you can, specifically in situations where subjects don't speak any English? And sometimes it seems invasive to be asking them to sign a contract written English. So is this our responsibility or the organizations or both? Uh, so I uh, tend to uh, always prefer uh, written consent over, uh, over verbal consent, especially uh, to, uh, first of all, to guarantee, uh, well, <laughs> to, to guarantee that we have actual proof of uh, what uh, was consented and also uh, with the well a lot spoken of gdpr rules uh, we really definitely uh, need uh, written consent so when it comes to language i always try to have a trust trusted translator with me that can translate every single uh, part of uh, the agreement of the document that people will have to sign uh, in a way that they will be able to understand. So go through it point by point and uh, take all the time that it needs to make sure they fully understand what it entails. And uh, then having them uh, sign it if they feel comfortable and if there is any doubt about whether or not they feel comfortable, then we, uh, well, I, I take that as a no, I don't give consent. So I try to be very strict with that. I want to have a consent forms for every single person that appears in my stories. Wonderful, thank you. This next question is for Constance. Um, for those on the agency side offering services, where does our story enter into these dialogues? Um, this person has talked at their organization about how they only feature clients, but should they as employees join them in sharing their journeys too for the sake of mutual mutual vulnerability? Um, I think that sounds great. I think that that is a way to kind of enter into the dialogue and put make yourself vulnerable and see how you feel comfortable telling stories about yourself, your own organization. Um, I think about that a lot when we talk about um, ethical fashion, because I think we're so keen right now to tell stories of people who make our clothes, but I wonder if, um, I, I truly wonder if we would do that for just about everything or for any product that's made. And so I think it would be um, really, I think I think stories are great, period. Um, but the more we can have and the more diverse they are and they mo the more they show that the full impact of an organization, I think um, it just benefits everyone. Uh, Adam, this one's for you. When you're shooting in a B-roll, uh, context and don't include identity, voice, et cetera, like truly concealed identity at all in your final product, do you get written consent in that context? 
That's a really good question. Not always. I haven't always. Now, when I now there's uh, there's also for documentaries. You know, two of the major contexts that I've been working in have been feature documentary films, where I'm, you know, the first one was a break dancing film where I was out, you know, for example, in Colombia filming a, a street battle that we put on, um, where we had hundreds and hundreds of people, um, and I think when possible, you know. Traditional production standards are that you post, clearly post um, signs around that people are going to be documented. Um, but when you're out in the street, it is, you know, there are going to be situations where you're going to have faces in B-roll. Um, but I think it's, you have to use your discretion. How are you using that? Um, is it, um, you know, when you're, are you singling someone out and even still if you're showing um and i have a story about this in a second but if you're showing a, like a public square is this does this serve a, a purpose in the story that you're trying to tell and does it show this culture with dignity so there was one time i was in ethiopia and i was filming for a, a for-profit company but that has it's the first uh, fair trade shoe company in the world and they make their shoes in ethiopia and i was out getting b-roll around the city and i was filming in what was presumably, you know, a not great neighborhood. And there was a young man, probably about 17 years old, who walked up to me and I had my camera set up on a tripod and was filming uh, this sort of village in the outskirts of town. And he's, he came up, came up to me and he was a little bit upset and he just said, why are you filming that? And I kind of explained that I was just getting B-roll around the city and he's like, please don't film that neighborhood. And so, of course, I turned my camera off and then had a dialogue with him. And what I didn't really understand or know because it was new to the area is that that was a, you know, a known really poor area. And he thought it was just undignified that I would represent Ethiopia by only filming this one particular neighborhood and not, you know, he started pointing out all these other different things that I could be filming to show Addis Ababa in a good light. So I think um, it's, a really, it's really challenging to, to know the exact answer to, to that question. Um, but I think that you have to use your common sense and obviously you can't, you know, especially when you're shooting with a nonprofit, you don't have a location manager who's off getting consent from a thousand people out in the market. Um, but you have to use discretion. Hopefully that answers that question. It's a really hard one, actually. Yeah, that is a hard one. Um, sometimes you can look to into local media laws before you go and find out if posting um, in a public area is needed or whatnot. So that's another suggestion. Um, this is going to be our final question just because we're running out of time. But Gabriele, one question is, how can we avoid this white saver complex that you mentioned? Maybe if you can give us one or two practical ways that you approach photography in a way to avoid that. Uh, that's a very good question, and I think there is always <laughs> always need to be careful about that. But uh, the first thing that I would do is to well, the first uh, suggestion that I would do that I would give is to try to avoid portraying the let's say the expatriate or the white person as the center of the story, or uh, portraying them as uh, uh, the person that solves the situation and that uh, is. Uh, uh, let's see, yeah, the protagonist. Uh, I think the uh, the attention should be on uh, the per, well on the beneficiaries of uh, the NGO or uh, 
or on the mostly on the local stuff to show uh, the diversity of the composition of an NGO. So, um, so recently I came back from uh, yeah an assignment uh, to while in Ethiopia, and there uh, well let's say that there were a lot a lot of uh, national local stuff and very few experts, but still uh, the nonprofit I was there with was asking me to uh, make stories about the experts they were there and how good they were because they were working there. And uh, I pushed back on that and uh, I said, no, I think that is not right. It doesn't, it portrays people as helpless so, or as uh, deprived of agency. So um, I tried to make them understand that it was much more beneficial and much more ethical actually to portray uh, yeah, the, the people that they are trying to assist as the protagonists of the stories and uh, to give them agency, to make them appear for what they are. So people with uh, their own individuality, with uh, their uh, own, uh, that yeah, that take charge of their own lives and that uh, contribute to the work that the organization is doing by being part of their communities and trying to help their communities as well. So I think is, uh, yeah, I don't have a clear answer to that because it's always a bit tricky and every situation is different, but I would say try not to make the expatriate the protagonist of the story, not the center of the story, but uh, more the other way around as an accessory to the story. Thank you so much. Um, apologies to everyone who we weren't able to get to your questions, but we thank you so much for attending and listening in. A big thank you to our panelists. Ethical storytelling is run entirely by volunteers with a passion to change the way we tell and consume stories. Please be sure to subscribe to our Ethical Storytelling podcast, which is available on iTunes and other podcast apps. We release a new series following each webinar with new guests who share more personal stories of the ways that ethical storytelling plays out in their work. Um, and our panelists will be included in those podcasts following. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website, ethicalstorytelling.com, to be the first to know about future webinars, blogs, and other resources. Today's webinar recording will be made available to each of you in a follow-up email, as well as our website in the near future. That concludes today's webinar. Thank you all for participating, and have a great day. <laughs>